This season is brought to you by our exclusive sponsor, Google Nest. Nest Renew is a new service that leverages eligible Nest thermostats to help you use less expensive or cleaner energy at times when more carbon-free sources are available on the grid. Even a lot of energy nerds, you don't, they don't know about marginal emissions intensity. They don't recognize that the grid is fluctuating continuously from hour to hour, minute to minute. And so being able to empower customers with the ability to automatically just use energy when it's a little less carbon rich and kind of a little less of a strain on the grid, that is just this amazing thing that we can do. That's Ben Brown, the product lead for Google Nest. A bit later in the show, Ben will describe why Nest Renew is so valuable for people who want to support a clean energy future right from their homes. To learn more about Nest Renew, visit nestrenew.google.com or click the link in the show notes. So Matt, are you in the ashram? I am in the ashram. (laughs) Maybe explain what the ashram is. Yeah, so we're here in um, downtown Berkeley, California, in a Buddhist co-working space called Dharma College. And our company's been here since we moved out of the garage uh, a few years ago. It's an excellent place to to do a startup. I love it. When I first heard that you worked out of an ashram, I was like, we need to look at this. (laughs) (laughs) I'm Emily Kirsch, founder and CEO of Powerhouse and managing partner of Powerhouse Ventures. This is What It Takes, a show about the entrepreneurs making our climate-positive future a reality. Earlier this year, solar reached a historic milestone when it crossed one terawatt of capacity around the world. One trillion watts. That is a huge achievement. But solar still only makes up 3% of the world's electricity. To deploy dozens of terawatts in the coming years, we'll need to do something about the bottlenecks holding back the planning, design, and construction of these massive solar farms that will be the workhorses of a renewable-powered grid. Enabling dozens of terawatts of solar development is exactly what my guest, TerraBase Energy CEO and co-founder Matt Campbell, is doing. TerraBase has built the first digital platform that integrates the whole life cycle of a solar power plant. So starting with early stage development, all the way through construction and operations. And what's unique about what we're doing is we have part of the platform in the digital world and part of it in the physical world. So up until now, the PV industry has built one terawatt. In fact, we crossed the milestone this year. But looking into the future, we need to build at least 50 terawatts of PV, and we need to do it in half the time it took to build one terawatt. TerraBase's mission is to accelerate the build-out of utility-scale solar by combining new modeling and design tools with robotics and automation. If I'm at a TerraBase worksite, where am I in the world and what am I seeing? Yeah, if you were to see a a solar power plant that TerraBase is involved with, what you would see is um, a large ground-mounted system. They can be miles in in surface area. Um, You'll see it kind of looks like a farm. I mean, I think the term solar farm is appropriate because what you see our row after row after row of solar panel following the sun to harvest energy and and bring it onto the grid. On sites where we in the future deliver our automation and digital technology, you'll also see, in addition to the farm, you'll see robotics, you'll see a pop-up factory, you'll see drones and other digital infrastructure that helps the EPC contractor build it more efficiently. This combination of modeling software and automation is already bringing strong results. 
In 2020, just a year after the company was founded, TerraBase worked on the 800-megawatt Siraj-1 solar power plant in Qatar. It set the world record for the lowest-cost solar power at around 1.5 cents per kilowatt hour. Today, TerraBase has over 500 engineering procurement and construction companies, developers, and independent power producers using their platform. 10 gigawatts worth of solar projects have been supported by TerraBase across 30 countries. And if we can build the technologies that help to do that better, and it has a meaningful contribution, then we would define that as success. And, you know, our name is Terra, like Terawatt. So for me, success is making a terawatt scale impact on PV. Full disclosure, our fund, Powerhouse Ventures, was one of TerraBase Energy's first investors, so you may hear my bias come through throughout our conversation. I spoke with Matt about what it takes to automate the build-out of utility-scale solar. We talked about his decade-and-a-half career expanding solar worldwide at SunPower and what the solar industry's early years taught him about pushing the technology forward. We started with his childhood in suburban Minneapolis, where he cultivated an early love of technology as a young tinkerer. Matt, where did you grow up and what did your parents do for work? Yeah, I grew up in the suburbs of Minneapolis, kind of in the border between the suburbia and rural areas. My father and stepmom were consultants, marketing consultants, and my mother was a photographer. And, uh, And as I grew up, I like to think I brought a little bit from both worlds. So sort of the business side from one side and then the creative side from my mom. And as a kid, I know you tinkered with radios and other gadgets and helped your grandfather fix farm machinery at a hardware store that he owned. Tell me more about your childhood, what it was like, what you were like as a kid. Yeah, I was definitely a a tinkerer from early on and spent a lot of time with my grandfather, who was also an entrepreneur. They had a small hardware store in rural Minnesota. And so we would go there on Sundays and go in the shop and fix things, fix tractors and build batting cages and all sorts of projects. And that really got me interested in in sort of engineering. And and I guess we didn't have the term maker back then, but that's sort of what we did. And your very first solar project was with your grandfather, is that right? That's right. Back in 1983, I I, I was into electronics, like building shortwave radios and stuff. And one of the projects, uh, I bought a small solar cell from Radio Shack, and we made a a solar cell to, to power an electric fan. And uh, so I guess that was my first foray into PV. Do you remember what you loved about doing this kind of play? I just, I guess I was always obsessed with building things, whether it was building a tree house or building a radio or making modifications to a car. Uh, I just always enjoyed that kind of creative process and, and was always very interested in technology, computers, electronics. And so that was always just kind of part of what I spent my time on. Hmm. You got your first computer back when they weren't normal household items, right? That's right. Yeah, we got an Apple II computer right when they were first released and uh, spent a lot of time learning how to program. And yeah, that was, it, was, it seemed like a remarkable invention at the time. My, my kids wouldn't recognize it, but at the time it was pretty high tech. <laughs> So after high school in 1991, you decided to take this love for science and technology to University of Wisconsin in Madison, where you started out studying engineering, but then switched over to finance, marketing, real estate. Why did you make the shift? Yeah, so I started in aerospace engineering. I I had a dream to to work on designing spacecraft. Um, But after getting into the program, I realized, although I, I could certainly do it, 
I just felt like my um, my real passion was on business and, and entrepreneurship and decided to switch from engineering to business. And you worked at Best Buy while you were in college, right? That's right. So I, I worked at uh, Best Buy in the 90s, um, selling and fixing computers. And at the time, it was really the, the period where computers were really taking off to become a mainstream household appliance. And the internet was just starting. Everybody was trying to get online. And, um, and it was actually a terrific experience in learning how to explain something new and very technical to folks that had no previous experience with technology. So I found that um, it, was, it was really helpful, and I've used those skills in my career. And then after graduating over the course of the next five years, you worked your way up from an early tech support job to being a product manager at Persoft, a leading software company that had employees who went on to found Netscape. And then you spun that into a, a VC investment associate role with William Blair Capital Partners, where you made some important investments in software and a couple early AI investments. But this was all in the midst of the dot-com bubble. What was that period in your life like? Yeah, it was a tremendous uh, learning experience. So, you know, at Persoft, we were really early in, in sort of network connectivity. You know, it predated the advent of the web browser and and uh, where we're connecting PCs to mainframes and things like that. So that was a really fascinating learning experience. And uh, spent a lot of time with customers around the world, learned a lot about how they use our software. That led to working in venture capital in, in Chicago. And in the dot-com time was was insane. I looked at 2,000 business plans in two years, and uh, they used wow. to be stacked to the ceiling in my office. They were all printed at that time, and they were all one to two inches thick. Uh, oh, my gosh. <laughs> so I, don't, I don't know if you still see that at Powerhouse, but... Mm-mm, never. Uh, um, but uh, it was, you know, a lot of really great innovation, a lot of irrational exuberance, but it was it was pretty pretty cool time. So you have this stack of business plans in your office, maybe indicative of the tech bubble that was about to burst. And in 2000, you left your job ahead of the bubble to get an MBA focused on tech commercialization from Haas at UC Berkeley. And in 2001, you started and were COO of a company called Iris AO, a UC Berkeley spinout, commercializing MEMS or microelectronic mechanical systems, um, which is semiconductor technology that you were applying to biomedical devices, the space industry, defense. How was starting your first company and what else was happening in your life at that time? Yeah. So yeah, during grad school, I'd met up with some engineers and and um, we'd found this opportunity to commercialize some MEMS technology and spin it out of the university. And, you know, I always had wanted to do a Silicon Valley startup. I was really excited to find an opportunity while I was in school. Um, you know, we took the idea and went into some business plan competitions and, and won those. And we used that to bootstrap the company. Um, but when we formally started the company, it turned out it was the week of 9-11. So it was a really dark time to um, to start a company. You know, the capital markets dried up. Um, but we kept going and, and managed to get funding from some big customers like Bausch & Lomb, as well as the government. How long did you run the company? And then why did you decide to not continue to pursue it? Yeah, so between school and after school, it was about a two-year run with the company, um, although the company continued for another 15 years. 
the um, the reason I moved on was the technology was very hard to commercialize. So making micro mirrors on a silicon chip is very uh, capital intensive. And frankly, the market wasn't big enough to justify the level of capital investment which was required. And uh, and it, the project took on the nature of like a, a postdoc. <laughs> so, um, so as the business person, um, I, it was time to move on. And I found an opportunity on Craigslist with a startup called SunPower that needed uh, folks to commercialize some optoelectronic solar cells and, uh, and made the leap. And in between the company you started and joining SunPower, you were getting engaged at the time, right? That's right. So coming out of grad school, I was, I was getting engaged. And, and I think that's what really uh, focused my career decision. I had funded the startup with credit cards, had managed to, to rack up some nice debt. And then one day uh, when I was going to propose, I turned to my co-founder, Cliff, and said, you know, I'm going to propose today. And he said, well, Matt, do you have a ring? And I said, well, Cliff, I, I can't afford a ring. And he's like, well, you have to have a ring. And so I borrowed $20 from him. And this startup was also in Berkeley. So I walked down to Telegraph Avenue and found a uh, ring with an elephant on it. And uh, it was $14 and used that as the engagement ring. And the significant... And your wife said yes. And she said Yes. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, thankfully, my in-laws didn't know how broke I was at the time. Mm. Um, but soon after that, I realized, well, I'm getting married. I kind of need an income source. And, uh, and then I joined SunPower. Got it. So you took this job with SunPower in 2004 when there were just 40 people on the SunPower team, first in a BD role, and then as the solar cell product manager, where you oversaw the first solar cell to reach 20% efficiency. And just 18 months after you joined SunPower, they go public via IPO, and then SunPower vertically integrates and merges with PowerLite. Tell me about all of that. Yeah, it was an incredible journey. I remember when I was first interviewing with Tom Warner and he was projecting the growth of the company and and the growth trajectory seemed incredibly optimistic, but the reality was we grew even faster than than uh, what had been anticipated. Yeah, so I joined SunPower in in 2004 and at the time it was just 40 people and 3 million in revenue and the projected growth seemed unbelievable. You know, there were optimistic forecasts for the industry, but solar was still relatively a, a small cottage industry at the time. But after I joined, the company grew extremely fast. Just 18 months after I joined, we went public. I was fortunate to be in on uh, Nasdaq ringing the bell and uh, in fact we we had a team there for the event which was an incredible experience but we didn't have enough people on stage to ring the bell uh, so they actually invited my wife who was there up on stage and there was a funny story where my dad watched it on CNBC and my wife is short and so they put her in front and so he said, well, I saw Shala <laughs> ring the bell, but I didn't see you. You were in the back. Um, and, and the significant there, there was a real significance to the IPO for a variety of reasons. Number one is it was the first real tech IPO after the dot-com crash and then after 9-11. And it felt a little strange at the time because, you know, here's this big IPO party, good times are back again. And it was just a few years after the tragedy of 9-11. And, and it, was, it felt like things were back, things were different, but definitely um, sort of back to this sort of tech, tech investment cycle. Mm -hmm. the, the other thing that was significant was it was the first major solar IPO. And it really was uh, a leader. And soon thereafter, First Solar went public, other companies went public. Um, but, you know, at the time, people really were surprised that a solar company could go public. And, and the company performed really well in the public markets after the IPO. 
Mm-hmm. And then tell me about the merger with Powerlight and especially the two cultures. Like I know Dick Swanson, the founder of SunPower, he was our first guest on What It Takes. We've had Dan Sugar, who was at Powerlight on the show. Lots of different, you know, personalities. Tell me about that. Yeah. So it was, it was, you know, the company had had determined that the strategy to go forward was vertical integration. Rather than just make panels, we're also going to do the construction, we're going to build balance of system components, and we're going to look for ways to add more revenue and margin to the, the high-efficiency panel. So we decided to merge with our customer, Powerlight. But it was a fascinating experience because both companies were in hyper-growth mode. In fact, Powerlight was getting ready to go public themselves. And, mm-hmm. and both companies had about 150 employees. The SunPower culture was the kind of nerdy Silicon Valley button-down culture. And then Powerlight was kind of the wild and crazy Berkeley, a um, little bit of hippie, hippiness in the culture and, and very sort of outbound sales-oriented. So bringing those cultures together was quite an interesting challenge. And then we hired 150 people in, in a year. So it was really like, you know, you're, you're flying down the runway, building the airplane. And, but in the end, I think it was a really successful combination and, and drove a lot of advances in the market. Agreed. So you spent 15 years at SunPower, eventually becoming VP of Global Power Plants in 2018. Over those 15 years, you oversaw major solar power plant projects around the world. When you joined in 2004, did you think you would be there for 15 years? Well, my original plan was to stay for a year and then go to another startup, but I I didn't realize I was stepping onto a rocket ship, and so I I stuck around a lot longer than planned, but it was an incredible experience, and I'm glad I did. The uh, industry was growing at an incredible rate. There was the birth of the solar power plant industry, which a lot of people never thought was going to happen. And, uh, and we were on the cutting edge of innovation. There were a lot of really smart and talented people there. It was kind of, I don't know, being in Haight-Ashbury in the late 60s or something. It was, it was like the time to be there. And, and what's interesting is it was, like a, it was like a university for people that went on and seeded the industry, both for solar and sun power and sun Edison. And so it was mm-hmm. quite, a, quite a great time to be there at the heyday. Coming up, a big company shift forces Matt to reevaluate his role and makes him think about starting a whole new venture. But first, a word from our exclusive sponsor of this season of What It Takes, Google Nest. Ben Brown is the product lead at Google Nest. He's been building home automation products for 15 years, including as the founder of Google Wi-Fi. Your responsibility as a product designer, product developer, is to build the best product possible, to just make it as easy and simple and enjoyable and make people's experience in their home better. Today, Ben is focused on Nest Renew, a new service that helps you support a clean energy future with your eligible Nest thermostat. And so if we can have customers at the forefront of showing the power of what we call energy shift, but being able to do that across millions of households to be able to showcase what is possible is something that we really believe is critical to speeding up the transition. With a feature called Energy Shift, Nest Renew lets you heat and cool your home when more clean energy is available on the grid. If you're on a time of use rate with your electric utility, Energy Shift can help you shift usage to times when energy is less expensive. We are all key components and key parts of that solution. The massive challenge in making that uh, work really, really well uh, without a ton of unnecessary infrastructure is really going to make it so that all homes and businesses are able to kind of use energy in an intelligent way to really support that transition. 
Want to do more to address climate change? Nest Renew offers a simple place to start. To learn more about Nest Renew, visit nestrenew.google.com or click the link in the show notes. In your 15-year arc at SunPower, when did you first start to think about starting something like TerraBase? Yeah, you know, I always had the entrepreneurial bug, but, you know, started a family. Things were going great at SunPower, a lot of growth, a lot of excitement. Um, So I kind of put it on the back burner for a long time. But about four or five years ago, it was clear that, you know, the industry you know, needed more innovation. SunPower had decided to change directions and focus on residential solar away from power plant. And at that point, I really started to think about, you know, what is what is the power plant industry need in the future? What kind of technology can we bring to drive efficiencies? And how can we continue the legacy of innovation we had started at SunPower, but as an independent company focused on the sector? And so it sounds like you realized that current approaches in power plant solar, utility scale solar, development and procurement and fulfillment and construction, none of that was really optimized to scale. And with utility scale projects, we're talking about hundreds of thousands and in some cases millions of panels, thousands of shipping containers, maybe 100 million pounds of steel, half a million installation labor hours. And we've seen the cost of Hardware and panels, for example, dropped 90% in the past decade, but you realized that soft costs and operational efficiency had become one of the biggest barriers to continued growth. That's right. Yeah. I mean, what was clear is that although the panels, as you mentioned, got much better and, and much cheaper, the way that we did the development, design, construction, and operation of solar plants hadn't really changed. And and really, to this day, it hasn't changed much in the last 10 or 15 years. The way we built projects you know, 15, 10 years ago is, is really the same as it is today. And so we saw that to take solar to the next level in terms of cost, you had to bring innovation and, and innovation in the form of digitalization and automation in the same way that those things have brought efficiencies to other industries. And so your idea was to enable developers and EPCs to better scope and track and manage and understand all of the complexities associated with directing tens of millions of components across global supply chains. And tell me about the original tech. I know it's a combination of GIS design tools, AI-enabled engineering services, inventory tags to track the location and fidelity of components. But tell me about the original tech. And I know that some of that was developed at SunPower, but then you bought the IP and, and so developed the company completely separate from SunPower. Yeah, the original tech was developed to support our project development team. So we were scouting sites around the world, and we had bottlenecks in our ability to take a piece of land, characterize it, design it, cost estimate it, etc. And so we said, you know, this is this is a problem that lends itself to software. There were no tools on the market at the time, so we de- we developed uh, in-house software to to solve the problem, and it was very effective. We used it all over the world, and what we realized is. You know, there's a market outside of SunPower for this, and so that's that's part of the impetus to spin it out. and uh, And for us, it was a first step towards our future vision of full digitalization. And appropriately, it starts at the beginning. So you you digitalize the design phase, and and since we spun it out, you know, we've built onto it to digitalize construction and and operations. And I know TerraBase has. Six co-founders, that's a lot of co-founders, four of whom, including you, left SunPower to start TerraBase, and the other two used to work with you at SunPower. How did the six of you decide to join forces and then make that leap to ultimately start TerraBase? 
Yeah, I mean, um, you know, the four were working, we were all working together at SunPower. So we kind of left as a team. And so it was a natural progression to, to just keep working on what we had been doing. Um, and then, you know, as, as I thought about the skill set of the team and what we need, what kind of skills we needed in the future, we identified a couple areas that, that we thought we should fill in. So we contacted some former colleagues and convinced them to come back. Um, there was a, a fun story. One of our co-founders, Amin, he's from Morocco, and he was doing big solar development in Morocco. So I flew there and took a hike with him in the Atlas Mountains and, and convinced him to come back to California and do a startup. And uh, so we got the team back together and, uh, yeah, got going from there. And then I know a month after starting the company, you had just chosen the name and you were in Dubai for a meeting for Terabase. What happened in that meeting? Yeah, so we had just gotten started, you know, still in the garage, uh, just came up with a name. Then we got a phone call from some former people we knew and they said, hey, can you help us with a project in Qatar? And as a startup, we were thrilled. They'd, oh, first customer. Okay, let's go to let's go to Qatar. And uh, so we flew out to the region and had a meeting in Dubai. And um, it was a bit of a surreal experience because, you know, one of the things in leaving, you know, SunPower, which was owned by Total, the French oil and gas company, I was concerned that, you know, it would be hard to be credible without the backing of a major corporation, especially when you're doing you know, really big infrastructure projects. And so it was refreshing that, you know, even as a very young company, we could have a seat at the table. And it was a little surreal to people hear people using our name, Terabase, because we just came up with the name. <laughs> it was, it was <laughs> like, oh, as if me. we'd been in business a long time. Um, but, <laughs> but we were very fortunate to be involved in big projects right away. And, and that was, I think, really integral to, to our growth and, and helping us to define our product roadmap. In October 2019, you raised a 1.8 million seed round with participation from us at Powerhouse Ventures, along with City Light Capital and Trancoso Partners and former friends and colleagues of yours from SunPower. How was raising the seed round and what did it enable Terrabase to do? Yeah, you know, raising the seed round was actually more challenging than I had anticipated. Um, when we got started, I I kind of felt like we had such a long track record at SunPower that that raising money would be pretty straightforward. And I found myself doing lots and lots of lunches, you know, begging for $25,000 here and there. <laughs> and um, it was a humbling experience. And And I think part of the issue was that there weren't a lot of successful exits for solar startups, and there was a long list of ones that didn't work out. And there was also, I think, a view that solar was a solved problem. In fact, we heard that from some big investors like, hey, solar's cheap. What else do we need to do? And thankfully, we had uh, visionary uh, investors like Powerhouse that, uh, <laughs> that saw the opportunity. And um, so it was, it was great to close that first seed round. And that, you know, we had bootstrapped it up until that point, which was, which was great. And we built a lot of great client relationships. But then once we had a little capital, we could, you know, really direct more resources to product development. And did that look like expanding the team uh, in terms of the use of the capital? And what roles did you, f what were some of the first roles that you hired for? Yeah, we hired on the software side. So those were some of the first roles that we filled out. You know, we were already growing our engineering team because we were, you know, kind of bootstrapping through a lot of engineering work. And, um, and mostly, mostly on the tech side. And, you know, we were always a very frugal company. So we um, never got too far ahead of ourselves in terms of hiring. And, um, 
Still are. You're still in the ashram in Berkeley. That's right. I still, we still try to keep it frugal. And, and you know, I think Amazon's got this thing where in all the Amazon, Amazon distribution centers, I think they have a, I don't know if it's a bench or a picnic table, which was like a replica of what they had in their first garage office, you know, which is let's maintain a culture of frugality even when we're big. And that is, that mm. is one of the things we want to continue because sometimes when companies raise a lot of money, spending gets a little ahead of yourself. And uh, so we got to keep, you know, more resources so we can do more, but let's, let's still be thoughtful about the investment, what we invest in. Hmm. Speaking of being thoughtful with resources, you received two grants from DOE, a $1 million grant and then later a $1.5 million grant um, that was part of the initial capital. Was that after the seed round or part of yeah, the first, around the same time? Yeah, the, the first grant came in around the same time and then, and then we were awarded a second grant. Yeah, and, and the DOE, you know, I've worked with the DOE for a long time. They've always been terrific supporters of solar. And it was great to work with them again at TerraBase. And, you know, I think it, Working with them, I think, kind of gave some credibility to the the uh, automation system we were developing, which they were the first sponsor of, and it allowed us to kind of advance our R&D to, to the prototyping phase. Shout out to DOE. They've played such an important role in the majority of the companies that we've had on What It Takes, so credit where credit's due. Absolutely. So you mentioned Terabase's technology can be broken down into two parts, a digital component through the planning software that you've developed, and now an automation component with the machines that are used on site to aid construction. Tell me more about Terabase's technology, both the digital side, but then more recently, the use of things like robots. Yeah. So, you know, the first the first goal for our platform is to digitalize everything. And sometimes I think of Amazon as an analogy where, you know, Amazon brought digitalization to retail. You know, I look for the goods online. Once I order the goods, I can track them online until they're shipped to my house. And um, But Amazon does not exist as a purely software company. You know, if Amazon had decided that their business was just to sell software to Kmart or other retailers, things would be completely different today. And And part of the issue is, you can't drive the full efficiencies if all you do is sell the software to Kmart. You have to fundamentally rethink how things are done in the physical world. So Amazon built highly efficient distribution centers to handle millions or billions of packages. And we saw the same thing in solar where you can't just write software, give it to somebody and say, hey, be more efficient, please. Um, you had to actually integrate it with the physical activity. And, and it's really the nature of building big infrastructure where you have 20,000 containers of material coming from all over the world, and it all has to be coordinated. So we said, we have to reimagine how things happen physically on the site through a combination of machines and automation and smart sensors. And, and um, so that, that's our view of the future. Now, it's, it's an ambitious undertaking, but we want to make a big difference. And in, in our view, this is the way to do it. You mentioned the project in Qatar. Who were your first customers and how did you get them? I know they called you, which is pretty great for, for from a first customer standpoint, but who were some of the others and, and how did you find them? Yeah, I mean, our, our customers were uh, diverse by role. So our first customer in Qatar was, was Power China, which is the world's largest energy EPC contractor. And we had a great uh, partnership with them in Qatar. Um, we also worked with uh, developers, either directly or indirectly. So like the developers of that project were more Benny and Total. Um, and then we worked domestically with partners in, in Australia and Vietnam and Morocco and Tunisia and, and all over the world. And, and it was mostly just word of mouth. I mean, I think we had previously 
been quite active globally. So we had a network of folks and just sort of reconnected and, and found work. Um, and, and again, a lot of it early on was just optimization studies and consulting. And, but it was, it was a, a wonderful way to expand our worldview in terms of the market and what's going on in the technology. And yeah, I mean, a lot of, you know, sometimes there's a, a debate for startups, you know, 100% product focus versus kind of bootstrapping, a little consulting. And there's pros and cons to both approaches. Um, and certainly the volume of consulting work early on probably slowed down our product development. But I think it creates good fiscal discipline because you're, you know, you're doing the work and you're using that to pay programmers. And, and it's also just keeps you really close to the customer. And, and for us, the number one priority is to be side-by-side -side partnered with our clients, helping to make them more successful. Great advice. And what are your customers paying for today? I know early on it was more consulting heavy, but we knew that that was not the permanent state of the company that you would evolve. Um, what is the business model today? Yeah, it's a combination of software and services and um, and some other integration work. So we, um, we sell software, so Plant Predict, to model the energy of your solar plant. Uh, we've got a construction platform that, that's growing really quickly. We've already signed up over two gigawatts of projects that are being managed in our construction digital system, uh, which is more of a traditional software and services model. And then we build power plant control systems, talking to the grid, talking to the battery and the PV plant. And, um, and that's kind of a software services and hardware integration. So you started TerraBase three years ago in January of 2019. Two weeks ago in early August of 2020, you announced a 44 million Series B led by our friends at Breakthrough Energy Ventures and Prelude Ventures with participation from SJF Ventures and Powerhouse Ventures, bringing total capital raised to 52 million. When you reflect on fundraising from the seed to you raised an A to now the B, what have you learned and what advice would you give to entrepreneurs who are fundraising? The advice I'd give is is to be perseverant. Um, and, you know, when we started off, as I mentioned, it was harder to, to attract capital to solar than it is today. It would be vastly easier to do a startup today. But, um, but you know, I think we had conviction in where we were headed. And we met with tons of folks. And, um, and actually, both Prelude and, and Breakthrough, we had previously engaged around the Series A. It wasn't a fit at the time, but we kept in touch, and, uh, and we went out and executed, and we re-engaged, and we were fortunate to have them come in and lead the Series B. The new Inflation Reduction Act that has been passed and signed by the president is estimated to increase electricity demand by about 30% over the next 10 years in the U.S. Where will the electricity that TerraBase plants generate most likely be used? There's all kinds of new applications for renewable electricity, be it in green hydrogen or EV charging, um, industrial processes. Do you have a vision or are you agnostic and just, just get the plants built and whatever they're used for is fantastic? Uh, we're, we're agnostic. Um, I like to say our job is to make cheap solar electrons. And then what other people do with those electrons, you know, I think the sky's the limit. What what I what I think is going to happen though is that you know you're going to continue to see the the fast growth with grid connected solar plants. Of course, batteries are a growing component of that. When you add batteries, it makes the solar plants even bigger, and of course, you can dispatch it. You can even use solar at night, which some politicians don't think you can do. <laughs> <laughs> um, um, but uh, but beyond that, I think we're going to see humongous growth in hydrogen. Um, hydrogen 
as an energy carrier, but also hydrogen, hydrogen as a feedstock into making fertilizers, running industrial processes like steel making. I think we're at the just baby stages of what's going to be perhaps the biggest consumer of PV at some point in the future. Um, and we see our customers looking at that. I think that's going to drive a lot of growth. But those could be off-grid systems, so systems that are totally different from what we know today. And then I think you're going to think, see things like uh, direct air capture and uh, just anywhere you need electrons. I think one interesting phenomena is I think you're going to see a lot of load moving to the renewable resource. So we normally think of generating the energy and moving it to the city. But I think you're actually going to see the load go move to the resource, you know, the data centers, the energy intensive industries and chemicals and stuff like that. So I, I expect that to happen and drive a lot of growth in the future. Mm-hmm. That co-location makes a lot of sense for a whole lot of reasons. In April of 2021, TerraBase acquired RE Plant Solutions, a spin-out from for solar that makes solar plant controls. And in August of 2021, TerraBase acquired the predictive solar energy modeling tool Plant Predict, also from for solar. Tell me about making those kinds of acquisitions, especially at such an early stage in the company's journey. Yeah, I mean, back when I was at SunPower, I always had a you know view that we're building a portfolio of technology to help do solar power plants more effectively. And through that, we had done four acquisitions, cleaning robots, tracker systems, uh, power light. And um, so I you know, kind of had a, a familiarity with, with bringing in technology from outside to, to go faster. And so when we started TerraBase, it was always a view that we would develop a lot of technology organically, but when the opportunity presented itself, we would do acquisitions. So we were fortunate to come across two small acquisitions last year. And very happy to integrate both of those within the company. And, uh, and I think going, going in the future, we'll continue to have our eyes open for opportunistic integrations to go faster. So in terms of lessons learned and reflections, TerraBase has grown from just a handful of people in your garage uh, and now the ashram and beyond to a team of about 100 people. What have you learned about hiring since you started building your team? In terms of hiring, what's been real effective for us is hiring from our network. So, you know, between First Solar and SunPower, we've got a very large collective network. And, uh, and the hiring that we've done from that has been fantastic. It's people that we've worked with previously. We know their strengths and weaknesses. And that's allowed us to scale the team quickly and build a very effective team. You know, beyond that, um, you know, it's, it's the tr- traditional recruiting process. You know, we have stubbed our toe a couple times and learned from that. But overall, I think it's um, really understanding the person. Are they, are they interested in solar for the right reasons? Are they, you know, I think finding people that have just that inherent um, drive and commitment, that's fundamentally important, both culturally, and I think it, it, it leads to the right kind of um, integration with the team. And, mm-hmm. If you could go back in time three years ago when you were founding TerraBase, what would you tell yourself? I would work towards getting a proof of concept faster. So, you know, we had a sort of a paper vision of what we wanted to do and, you know, I think a a fairly well thought out plan. Um, But it took us longer than we had wanted to get to prototype, prototype on some of the software and and certainly the automation. And I think if we had gotten that earlier, it would have facilitated faster capital raising. Because as much as you can put your ideas on paper, the proof is in the pudding, seen is in believing. And uh, so I would have tried to find a way to do that faster. Do you think you could have? 
done it faster? I think so. <laughs> I mean, it, it, it's, it's, I mean, you, you have the resources that you have. And so we, you know, we didn't have that many resources, but um, I think even just a crude basic proof of concept, I think can go a long way. And I think we were mm-hmm. too focused on, well, we need, we need to build the full product. And it's like, well, maybe, maybe we I need see. the, the duct tape and, you know, sort yeah. of glue yeah, it yeah. together. And um, because once we had the proof of concept and, you know, whoa, people really said, this is really interesting. And, um, and then it was relatively straightforward to get capital. Mm-hmm. Where was that in the life cycle of the company? Was that pre-seed, post-seed, pre-A? Um, this is pre-A and really we use the A to build our kind of, our first prototypes and MVPs. And use that that delivery to our first clients to to support the B. What has been the single worst day at Terrabase? The worst day for me was Friday the 13th, 2019, when we mm. exited the ashram and went to our back to our garages. I mean, it was sad in that um, you know, we had all this momentum and team spirit, and now of course the the pandemic as the back backdrop, and and we didn't know what the future was. Was the industry going to atrophy? What was going to happen to the global economy? You know, of course, the safety of our families. So that that was the toughest day. How did you approach that with your team and with yourself? I guess we just put our head down and kept going. You know, it just Monday was a new day, and we all bought our Zoom licenses, and <laughs> you know, we we just <laughs> kept going. Now, now the hard thing for us though was that. Um, that was coincident with kicking off our Series A. So um, I, we had unfortunate timing on our Series A, but um, uh, but we just kept going and, you know, we were adapting to doing things over Zoom and so were the venture capitalists we spoke with. And we, we you know, we closed relatively quickly in June with SJF, but it was a little bit strange because none of us had ever met each other in person before. Well, shout out to Dave for being adaptable. What has been the single best day at Terrabase? There have been a lot of positive days, but one day that stands out for me is in June of last year, after we had all been freshly vaccinated, uh, we had our first team event out in our R&D center in Davis, California. So we had an unveiling of our proof of concept automation prototype. We had a company party. We brought investors and partners and Thankfully, it didn't turn into a super spreader, uh, but it was just so energizing that, you know, the team is back, we're back into the real world together, and uh, it was really a, a special day. Has your leadership style changed since you started TerraBase? I think my leadership style is largely the same as when we started. I am trying to get better at delegating. Um, I'm I'm pretty hands-on, and and so as we get bigger, I have to learn how to be a better delegator. So that's that's one of the things. Can you speak to your experience as a white man leading a climate tech company in an industry that is majority white and male? Yeah, that that's something that that I think a lot about, um, and certainly for us, bringing diversity into the workplace is something is a fundamental value that we take to recruiting. Now, I suppose that most CEOs say that these days. And, um, you know, I think the real question is, what can we do about it? And as I think about the world of energy infrastructure in general, it is an engineering-dominated profession. And I think, you know, even in the business roles, a lot of the folks were ex-engineers. And not to make excuses for the industry, but I think that what we see in the demographics is somewhat of a reflection of what you see in engineering schools. 
And so in terms of how we can make that better in the future, I think about um, getting involved earlier with high schools and colleges and being thoughtful about where we hire folks, uh, maybe going to universities we normally wouldn't recruit at that have you know better reflection of society. And then I think that the industry needs to really think about the workforce development going forward. Because with the IRA passing and projections of 5X growth in PV, we're going to need five times the people, whether they be construction workers or project managers or engineers or salespeople. So we need to be really focused on workforce development as an industry and as a company. And I think that presents an opportunity to try to bring in more folks into the into the industry. And at one point, I actually wanted to start a renewable energy online university <laughs> hmm. <laughs> because I think there's a need. I think there's a need to, to bring up the next-gen workforce. And that's where we can really start to move the needle, I think. Totally agree. I know you are a partner to your wife who you proposed to with a $14 ring and you're a parent of two kids. How has it been being a partner, a parent, while also being a founder and a CEO? Yeah, I'm very fortunate to have a super supporting um, partner in this journey. And she actually has her own startup uh, in the nonprofit world. So we've got a two-startup household, which keeps us all busy. Um, And it's been fun to go through the journey with the family. I mean, we started in my basement and garage. And so the company was kind of really integrated with my family and my daughters would come down and say hi and how are things were going. I used to have my youngest daughter click the send button on proposals for oh, <laughs> for good I love <laughs> I've got that. a picture like for good luck. That's the sweetest. <laughs> and um and and I always talk about it with them. Like and I one of the times I enjoy in the days is at the dinner table. We talk about the startup and what's going on and what's challenging, what's going well. And and they always chime in with all sorts of I really insightful comments and and you know, I'm hopeful. I'm trying to like teach them entrepreneurship as we go and as we grow. And then I hope someday they might become entrepreneurs on their own. Oh, that's great. What will the future of solar PV design and construction look like a decade from now? Yeah, I mean, I think we're going to see a widespread proliferation of digital tools. I do think we'll see, you know, innovation brought to construction through automation and then other innovations. I think we have to. I think it's the only way we're going to keep driving cost reduction. And these tools are really critical to meet the global need for PV. Because, you know, to give you a sense of perspective, like this this 800 megawatt project we worked on in Qatar as an example, the world needs to build one of those every hour, 8,760 hours a year for two decades. You know, I mean, you can have different views on exactly how much capacity we need, but the scale is mind-boggling. That project took three years. And it took an army of people to deliver it from all the partners and contractors and suppliers. And we need to be doing that just at an incredible pace. So mm. things have to modernize. And if TerraBase succeeds, what does the company look like in a decade? In a decade, I'd like to see the company making a contribution at the terawatt scale. I think the market is going to be at that scale. I'd like our contribution to be at that level. And I want us to be on the cutting edge of innovation. When people think about solar innovation, I want them to think about us. What technology exists in the world? How can we bring that to bear uh, to drive efficiencies? There's no speed which is too fast. We need to go much faster. And the way to do that is with innovation. 
Couldn't agree more. We're going to move into my favorite part, which you are familiar with. This is our high voltage round, quick questions, quick answers, quick meaning a couple second answers, starting with, and I'm so curious, I don't know the answer to this. Matt, if you were going to be an animal, what animal would you be and why? Um, I would be a beaver. And um, I love to build things. And so I'm inspired by the beaver. And the thing about the beaver is uh, he or she is sort of like an entrepreneur where they make best, they make do with the resources around them, the sticks, the stones, the mud, and then they build a dam out of that. And just like an entrepreneur needs to. And the thing about a beaver dam is it's actually really good for the ecosystem. So I like to build things that are good for the ecosystem, just like the beaver. Very thoughtful answer. What inspires you? Um, I'm inspired by people that, you know, are extremely capable, but are humble. I kind of say, you know, confident, but humble. If you had to start a new career tomorrow, what would it be? I like project development and I think it would be a lot of fun. I mean, I, I'm sort of jealous of our customers out there developing, but, um, I would do that. Other than yourself, to whom do you attribute your success? I think I've always had a very supportive family and, uh, and terrific mentors throughout my career. And almost every day, I, I think of a lesson I learned from a mentor. And, and I also like to, to kind of pay forward to the next gen in terms of helping out the, the, the team at the company. Tell me briefly about a specific time that you failed. I think as SunPower grew from a small company to a very large company, I failed to adapt to the, what was a much different organization. And I think that, you know, there were a lot of things I wanted to get done and I didn't get all of them done there because I think I had to kind of reinvent myself in terms of integrating with the very big, complex organization. It wasn't just a startup where you run around and, um, and can go, go as fast. Yeah. What lesson has taken the longest to learn? The importance of focus. You know, I think when, when I was younger in my career, you know, every time there's an opportunity, you want to go after it. And what I've learned uh, is that it's, if it's, you know, it's all about execution. And for that, you need focus. And, uh, and so I'm always looking for ways to simplify things. And, and the challenging thing in this environment is there is so much opportunity and we're being presented with new opportunities all the time. And so I try to coach the team. No, we got to stay focused on our plan. Mm -hmm. mm. What's the best investment you've ever made? Well, I think it's in TerraBase. <laughs> I agree. <laughs> what is something that you thought was true that you no longer believe? I think when I was starting my career, I had a pretty idealistic view of people that, you know, people are just inherently good and, and trying to do the right thing. And as I started working on these big infrastructure projects in the U.S. and globally, unfortunately, although I still think that most people are good, I did realize there was a small minority that, you know, for which greed is everything. And the mm -hmm. level of greed and corruption that I saw in my career was was a little bit surprising. And um, and although I think greed is good to drive, to motivate getting stuff done, you know, it can never be more important than doing the right thing. So, mm. Well said. Who has had the biggest influence on your life and work and why? The biggest influence on my, on my life and career, I mean, it's been my very supportive family uh, from when I was a kid. And then, and then the great mentors I've had in my career. When are you your best self? When I'm with my kids. What is your worst trait? Short attention span. If you could change one thing about the world, what would it be? More empathy. If there was just one person who was going to hear this podcast, who would you want it to be? 
My grandfather. What is your best quality? I like to think that I'm a good listener, and but I'm always working to be even a better listener. I think it's so mm-hmm. critical for working with clients and partners and your team. What's the hardest kind of help to ask for? Money. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you've done a great job so far. Um, Finish these sentences for me. Companies fail because... They fail for a lot of reasons, but normally leadership is the root cause. If you really knew me, you would know... I try not to take myself too seriously. Success is... Professional success is setting goals and achieving them. Is there a different answer for personal success? I mean, the, everybody says my family and everything. I mean, and of course. <laughs> <laughs> so, I mean, yeah, yeah I mean, I, I think, I mean, obviously, personally, I think having a happy personal life and family is, you know, but, um, but I think professionally, it's, it's I, I think whatever it is you want to do, if you want to be a baker or a solar entrepreneur, Determining what you want to do with your career and and accomplishing that, that feels like success. If I could have done one thing differently, I would have. Yeah. Again, this one's kind of repetitive, but I I would say I would have pushed to get to, if I could do one thing differently, I would have worked to get a proof of concept faster in the early stages of the company. If the world knew me for one thing, it would be. I hope to make a big contribution to solar. I'm most proud of. The projects I've worked on in my solar career and what we've built so far at TerraBase. Mm. To build a successful startup, what it takes is? The right team and perseverance. Matt, that concludes the high voltage round on what it takes. I'm really honored to be a small part of TerraBase's journey and to have had Powerhouse Ventures participate early and to see everything that you've done um, in just three years and what that means for what TerraBase is capable of over the next 10 and then 20 and 30 and beyond. Uh, I'm really inspired and grateful to to be a small part of it. Thanks. Thanks for having us. and, And thanks to Powerhouse for the early support. Matt Campbell is the CEO and co-founder of TerraBase Energy. Join us for new stories each month of founders who are building our climate-positive future, their upbringings, their risks, their failures, and their breakthroughs that are transforming our world. I want to thank our exclusive What It Takes sponsor, Google Nest Renew. I'd also like to thank What It Takes listener I Heart My iPhone, who wrote in their review of the show that Powerhouse's podcasts are an indispensable guide to the often complicated and fast-moving climate space. Their top-tier guests make each episode a must-listen. Highly recommend. What It Takes is produced by Powerhouse with support from PostScript Media. Powerhouse works with global corporations to help them find and engage with startups that have the tech that they need to succeed. Powerhouse Ventures backs entrepreneurs building the digital infrastructure for rapid decarbonization. Powerhouse's annual summer party, New Dawn, is happening on Thursday, September 15th in Oakland, and it is officially sold out with over 600 climate tech leaders attending. You can still get tickets if your company sponsors the event. If you're interested in joining our all-star group of sponsors, you can reach out to us at operations at powerhouse.fund. That's operations at powerhouse.fund. You can learn more at powerhouse.fund and follow us on Twitter at Join Powerhouse, and you can follow me at Emily Kirsch. If you enjoyed the show, I would love it if you gave us a rating or a review at Apple or Spotify. We read and really enjoy receiving them. Or send this episode to a friend or colleague who you think would enjoy it. Our executive editor is Stephen Lacey. 
Dalvin Abawaji, Ann Bailey, and Sam Wolforth helped produce this episode. Cecily Meza-Martinez is our managing producer. Sean Marquand and Greg Villefrank are our engineers. I'm Emily Kirsch. This is What It Takes. 